Welcome to Breakpoint Podcast, breaking down the world of tennis with your hosts, Val Fabo and Joel Frucci. History was made at Melbourne Park over the last fortnight, whether it was a 21st Grand Slam title, a two sets to love comeback, and also a first time winner for a nation in 44 years. What an Australian Open it was, and it led all of us to beg the question, Novak who? This is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo, and we have got plenty to talk about, including Rafael Nadal's historic 21st Grand Slam title, Ash Barty's third, but the first Aussie female to do it in 44 years, and also some controversial doubles matches that really, uh, really took the tennis world by storm, and we must say that. But before we get into any of it, I've got my very good friend here, Joel Frucci, to talk about it all with me. And how are you, mate? Oh, Oh, man, I'm tired. I'm tired, Val. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Oh, exhausted. <laughs> what a night last night was. That, oh, wow. What a men's final. Where, where were you at quarter past one last night? Uh, I was. We were having a wrap drinks with the um with the nine crew so i got to watch the start of it in a um in a suite in john kane arena and Very that nice. was that was pretty cool so bringing us all free food and free drinks so that was all good um and then we ended up moving to the transport bar um lovely so at the start of the fifth set walked to fed square um and then yeah watch the um watch the end of it there so no it was um yeah interesting places to be watching it but we are tired amazing- boys this morning Oh yeah, what an amazing, <laughs> amazing final it was, Joel. Um, but like, first, uh, the, look, we'll, we'll start with the men's, um, and then we'll get to Ash Barty. But Nadal, I'd, I've I've run out of superlatives over the last day to describe exactly what Rafael Nadal was able to do at Melbourne Park this fortnight. He was on crutches five months ago, and. Did, couldn't walk, his foot was screwed and all of a sudden comes out, wins the Melbourne Somerset, looks a bit rusty, still nobody thinks he's going to win the Australian Open. Gets through the first couple of rounds without dropping a set. Still nobody thinks he's going to win the Australian Open. Then gets through Kashinov, um and, and continues to push through. Still nobody thinks he's going to win the Australian Open. Gets through Denis Shapovalov in five. We think, no, that's it. Mateo's going to get him in the semis. Mateo doesn't get him. And all of a sudden he's in the final and we th- everybody thinks, nah, Daniel Medvedev should still get this done. Two sets to love down and two, three down, love 40. Medvedev has three break points. Rafael Nadal, nah, he's not going to win the Australian Open. Well, he's only gone and done it and taken the lead in the Grand Slam <laughs> race. Two, six, six, seven, six, four, six, four, seven, five in the second longest Grand Slam final in history. There are no superlatives for what... A, unbelievable fighter Rafael Nadal is. Well said, Val. Uh, it was it was a win that was befitting of the the GOAT debate ending, I guess. Now that'll rage on and we won't we won't delve into it because it is a rabbit hole, but it was a win by Rafael Nadal that was fitting to claim 21. Um, and look how he did it, I just I don't know. We've already covered off the obvious things like the foot injury, the fact that he had COVID a month before the events. He looked for half the tournament like he was building back up. And, um, you know, even in that in that match against Karen Kushinov, which at that point he had played his best tennis, he didn't. He still didn't really look at 100%. He looked like he was getting there. 
Um, and I didn't think he'd hit 100%. No. And, and what about that tiebreak against Adrian Manorino? Oh, yeah. Just insane. And then and come the final last night, um, once, once Daniel found himself two sets to love up, I'm thinking, okay, that's it. Um, he's, he's two sets to love up. We've got this, this 25-year-old. He's looking, he's looking in great nick. Um, Rafa really, at that point, had, let's be real, no right to, to win that match from, from where he was coming from. And his service games were, I don't know what the average was, but they would have surely had to have been averaging at least four minutes. And that is just, mm. that is insane. And the fact that he managed to turn it around as a 35-year-old off the back of the injuries, off the back of, of COVID, no one was really expecting him to get the job done. Um, just, just a stunning effort, really. Um, and as, as you know, we've we've said it already, but just it was fitting. It was so fitting. It was, and it, it, yeah, you're you're right. Uh, but I think the the thing that amazed me the most is the fact that so th- there's a couple of things really. So Medvedev down a break in the fifth breaks back and gets it to five all. Now, that could have easily been history repeating itself. And Rafa said this to Eurosport last night and the choice words he used was, fuck, (laughs) fuck, here we go again. (laughs) And I never thought I'd hear Rafa swear in English, but there we go. Um, But he said, here we go again. Because in 2012, he led 4-2 against Novak Djokovic in the final, in the fifth set, lost. 7-5 7-5 in the fifth. So very similar scoreline to this. And in 2017, he led Roger Federer 3-1 in the fifth set and lost 6-3. Federer reeled off the five, the last five games of that match. And then you think back to 2014 when he played so well against Federer in the semis and then a back injury curtailed his match against Stan Wawrinka. Stan wins in four. And then in 2019, he's absolutely wiped off the court by Novak Djokovic. He was one win and four losses in Australian Open finals and two sets to love down again. And all of a sudden, just there was that little shift in momentum when Daniel Medvedev played that drop shot in, with one of those oh, break points in the third what set. What on earth was he doing? It, was, but it wasn't even all, a drop shot. It was like with, a, I don't know what it was. It was, it was a, just a nothing shot. But that was the tactic that baffled me a little bit about Medvedev. He said he wanted to make him run, but not with a drop shot against Rafa. When Me- Look, I've seen Medvedev hit them beautifully, but it didn't work the first five times. Why was it going to continue to work? And he continued to persist with it, and I don't understand why. Yeah. But- You've you got, you got to get them perfect against, against Rafa because he tracks them down. doesn't matter how yeah. old he is, how old he's getting. He tracks them down. What's that old saying, Val, about uh, the true definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again? <laughs> the old the old Homer Simpson stuff where you just don't touch the electricity point, but he'll keep touching it. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> it was it was baffling, and and Rafa was just he was smart to it. He was there, and he was using the drop shot magnificently, and it was working for him. But I, I think the the other thing for me with Nadal and what he was able to achieve at Melbourne Park, he's now won every Grand Slam twice, but. He won his first in 2009. It's been 13 years since his first Australian Open, and he won that in five sets as well. But in between, he's won 56 titles, two Davis Cups, finished year-end number one four times, and won 14 Grand Slams in the middle of those two Australian Opens. 
it just doesn't it doesn't get any better like just an amazing amazing achievement and he's played now the two longest grand slam finals in history He's the definition of a fighter and Roger Federer was the first to congratulate him on Instagram last night saying to my great friend and dear rival Rafael Nadal, the fact that you've gone to 21, what, what an unbelievable achievement. And we were joking five months ago that both of us were on crutches and yeah, Rafael Nadal just has an enormous amount of respect from everybody in the tennis community, whether you love him or hate him, just amazing and yeah and how can you hate him really let's let's be real about that he's just he's just one of the most i think most likable athletes of all time just because of the way that he conducts himself i think so on and off the court uh, i think and off the court especially very humble great person and yeah there was it yeah it was just amazing Um, an amazing finish to the tournament but i want to talk about the other side of this as well because we've got the 21 Mm. we've got the record holder um, it's going to be a serious postmortem, that's for sure. Exactly right. And that's what I want to get into now. So Rafael Nadal was the only member of the big three at this Australian Open. And I want to get your thoughts on this, Joel, because I'm pretty hell-bent on it. Now, he was he had a bad foot. Some matches, he didn't look like he could run all that well. Didn't look <laughs> overly good in some of them. Um, and he still comes up with the chocolates beat Dennis Shapovalov who he's more than 12 years older than beats Matteo Berrettini comfortable comfortably who he's 10 years older than and then he comes from two sets to love down against the brick wall of Daniel Medvedev who he's 10 years older than Alexander Zverev lost in round four Stefano Tsitsipas played one good match of the competition and I know that sounds harsh but he did he only played one convincing match against Yannick Sinner now the next generation, and no matter whether you love this result for Nadal, whether you hate it, it doesn't matter. I'm very happy for Rafael Nadal. It's a great story, uh, just sensational narrative. But tennis needed a younger winner at this Grand Slam. It needed it. Medvedev had to yeah. do it for the next gen because they've been chomping at the tails of the big three for a long time now, these three, Sitipas, Zverev, and Medvedev especially. Medvedev is the only one that has been able to break through and win a slam. And yes, there's Dominic team as well, but he's a little bit older. He's 28, 29. So that's, he's kind of out of the equation here because we know what he can do over best of five sets. And we were robbed of that a lot last year, but Medvedev now Tsitsipas and Zverev are the only three men since 2004 to have dropped a grand slam final with a two sets to love lead. They're the only three. And these are the three that are supposed to be taking tennis onwards. And the big three have almost done the number on them that they did to Gasquet, that they did to Monfils, that they did to Burdich, that they did to Songer, that they did to Ferrer, and the list goes on. And it is really worrying the fact that Tsitsipas and Zverev, Zverev still hasn't beaten a top 10 player at a slam. It's it's worrying. Mm, Yeah. It's becoming a, a disaster. And Medvedev, I think because he's got one, might not be as bad for him. But the fact that he couldn't finish the match off, I think it is a bit of a worry. And what he was saying in the press conference about the little kid that he doesn't know if he wants to be dreaming anymore or he doesn't know how long he's going to be able to play, that worries me about the younger generation's mentality because the players born in the 80s, their mentality is a lot stronger. And this is our generation, Joel, and I think we can both say that the the 
you know, mentally our generation is not as strong as what previous generations are. And yeah, it's, it personally worries me that we're now going to have to wait for the likes of Sinner and Alcaraz to start winning slams. Yeah, I think so. Um, And when it comes, if you look at the, the opponents that Rafa beat Val, it's a, it's a good starting point to really look at this. And we've, we've spoken a lot about how um, we've spoken a lot about the, the next gen in men's tennis. And, um, you know, could the fact that, uh, you know, they, could, they, they can't seem to do it over five is really where the problem seems to be. They can do it over three well enough, seemingly, because, you know, we've seen Zverev, we've seen Tsitsipas, we've seen them win um, the year-end finals, but they just haven't been able to uh, get it done uh, at Grand Slam level. But, like, if we look at the players that Rafa played at this Australian Open, um, you know, we look at, at Dennis Shapovalov, I would put him in that category as well. He's, you know, kind of, he's in that that sort of sweet spot. I think he's, he's 24 years old. He's 22 Shapovalov. 22. So I'll stand correct. So 22. Okay. So he's still, he's still in a good age range, right? So Rafa gets him, you'd have to say, both mentally and physically. Shapovalov was right on top of him and he couldn't put him mm. away. Um, you look at Berrettini, destroyed him tactically more so. By the time that Matteo had adjusted, it was all over. He, Rafa absolutely went to town on the backhand side. And, and he executed plan. that plan beautifully. We, we, we cannot undersell how beautifully Rafa executed that match. So, oh, sorry, I'll let yeah. you continue. I just wanted to insert my... Oh, no, that's, no it, was, it was a point that needed to be made. And then, um, yeah, obviously, we get to Danil. You could see... Um, in, you could see in the, in the four set, really, that he and you know, the, the commentators on um, Wild World of Sport, Jim Carrey, Todd Woodridge, um, made a, a good point of the, I guess, the physical indicators that Danil was giving off that maybe he was sort of slowly starting to fatigue, the, the visible signs, the, you know, the pickle juice, the, 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 the rub downs. Um, it's, it's, it, I, just, I can't understand how they could be getting it so wrong. These these younger guys. I mean, you when when you put them next to a Rafa at this point, you would surely expect that they'd be able to outlast a Rafa, outlast hypothetically if Roger Federer was you know was um was was playing at this AO. Novak Djokovic maybe not. That's possibly up for contention. I think he's probably the greatest five set player we've we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But I just I I I can't fathom it though. What what is what is going wrong? I just. It has to come down, I think, and you've made the point multiple times about three sets versus five sets. Clearly, there is still a, a massive gulf physically for those guys that needs to be ironed out. Yep. Uh, I'm, honestly, Joel, I don't see it changing. I don't see it changing. Maybe only for Medvedev, considering that he's got that slam. But if I see Tsitsipas against someone, a member of the big three, and even if it is Federer, Mental, mentally, they're looking at the other guy over the net and thinking, mm. oh, my God, I've got to play Roger. I've got yeah, to play Rafa. I think, I've got I think to play well, Novak. Yeah, and I think as well, I think I think there's, like, mentally, there's still some real, and, and this is a word that's been thrown around a lot in the last week, uh, mostly out of animosity, but you know what? I think it's got some, validi- some validity. Immaturity. Mm. I think there's, there's really still a lot of immaturity here. And, um, you know, the, the two main culprits, as far as I'm concerned, are, are Daniel and are Stefano Sitsipas, and maybe to a lesser extent, because um, he's kind of like, I guess, in the in quotation marks in the backlog, Chapeau as well. I certainly yep. think he's still got some, some mental work to do um, and well, some maturing to do. But it, I, I, look, 
I don't think I don't think Daniil, even though he loves playing the villain, I don't think he's handling the uh, I guess crowd animosity well enough. And we, we saw that in the last two weeks, and certainly in the final. I mean, that crowd was always going to be partisan to Rafa. Always. Oh, yeah. Even if Daniil was a saint, he was never going to have the crowd in that match. They were always going to be for Rafa. And then looking at Steph, I'm not sure if this is an unpopular opinion or not, because look, obviously I haven't got haven't got the inside knowledge into his into his team, but the way that I see it is that for him specifically to progress, he I think his problem is that he needs to remove himself from his father's influence as a coach. I don't think he can make an impression on a slam with Apostolos as his coach. I think he needs to remove himself uh, from that influence because I don't know, for me, I've I've never really liked I've never really liked players having family in the box. I mean for me that kind of just gives off a bit of an immature vibe. Some players have dealt with it better than others, but I don't like it. For me that for me that that just kind of says Still a child, haven't moved on yet. Can't do it without family. I'll say I don't. I don't think of it as that. I just think that the result. Well, I, I guess the family member needs to understand the coaching dynamic when you are coaching. Separate being mother or father from being the coach, and vice versa. The player is not the child. The player is the pupil, in that sense. But I think you're right. I think Apostolos does need to be removed from Tsitsipas' coaching team or at least have a lesser role because it seems as though when there are issues, the common denominator on the other side of the net is Stefanos Tsitsipas. And we had this at the toilet breaks at the US Open and we had it this year with Daniel Medvedev with um, with that now famous or infamous outburst, however you want to call it, the small cat mm. outburst. Which yeah, it we was an outburst. And we will call it the small cat outburst, which was just absolutely hilarious. But beside the point. And then the genius move to put Eva Azdaraki more underneath the Tsitsipas box because she's Greek and she can understand it. Yeah. And then the wave. And Tsitsipas didn't win a game after that. So, yes, he does have a close relationship with his dad. And it's good to see. And he's not your typical, you know, the stereotypical tennis dad where he's abusive or anything like that. There's nothing along those lines happening. But you're right. I think he does need to be removed. And the immaturity thing that you brought up, Medvedev with the umpire against Steph and in other instances, doesn't need to blow up. And then with the ball kids and, no. and so on, doesn't need to blow up. Yeah, and- I, I really think, sorry to cut you off though, I really think that Daniel, and she was there last night in the crowd. I think he really needs to take a leaf out of Igish Fiontek's book out of Ash Barty's book and possibly look into getting a sports psych because yes, he loves being a villain, right? But he can't. But does he? he, he well, look, I, th- I think it's all well and good to, you know, play that role and, and feed off that. But, you know, when it gets too much, you can't, you can't then be upset by it. You need to be, you need to expect some, some animosity back your way and you need to be able to, you know, be able to manage that. And yeah, you, you, it's just it's you can't be using that energy in big moments like that in ways like that and and i do want to get back to the crowd stuff and how they i felt as though medvedev in a lot of instances was unfairly portrayed because he's not as much of a villain as what the australian crowd made him out to be he's not and without novak there it kind of accentuated things because 
of the Kyrgios match and how irritated he was getting that night. But that that's something that I want to bring up when we do talk about Nick, because there's a few things that we need to touch on there. But going back to what you said about Shapovalov and Tsitsipas, they all had their moments this tournament and all show like Shapovalov calling the umpires corrupt. Yeah, that was not good. That was in the middle of the court, like it was clear for all to see, and he got fined for it, rightly, rightly so. Um, so calling the umpires corrupt, and then you have Titipas being coached and and all that sort of stuff that he's been renowned that has been renowned for, been doing it for years, and then Medvedev blowing up at the umpire. There is that level of immaturity there, and it is so frustrating to watch because these guys are so good at tennis, but. They're just too fiery. They're too aggressive. And even Matteo Berrettini, he he was not enjoying himself in that semifinal against Rafael Nadal. He was not no. rising up to the challenge. The third set he did, but then made some just silly errors in the fourth and couldn't get the job done. They're still playing the auras of these guys, like your Federer's, like your Nadal's, like your Djokovic's. And this year, I'm going to stop picking them for Grand Slams because they keep making this mistake that one of these guys is going to win a slam because they're probably not. I think Rafa's got the French done and dusted. If he's not injured, Rafa wins it. Wimbledon, if Novak's allowed to play and doesn't get deported, he wins there. US Open, Novak's probably going to win there too. Mm, Yeah. I just, I can't see it changing unless something seriously massive happens in the coaching and and meetings and behind the scenes of these players. So I think we'll get more of a gauge of that when the Netflix documentary comes out next year. But before yeah. we do move on to the women's draw, Joel, uh, Nick Kyrgios and Thanasi Kokonakis, wow. They rocked up and won the doubles. Yeah, they did. They, they, did. they literally and- just rocked up and said, you know what, <laughs> we're winning the doubles. And they did. It was yeah. unbelievable. Um, defeating Max Purcell and Matt Ebden, Um in the final. And now the crowd was a massive issue. It was a humongous talking point uh, throughout this fortnight with Kyrgios and Medvedev. um, And then the Kyrgios Kokonakis matches. What did you make of it? Look of, of the crowd generally, I, I I might look at the risk of sounding like the fun police here. Um, Look, I think there's a very fine line here. I'm not against, I'm not against you know having fun at the tennis and getting into it and um, you know just just really sort of enjoying yourself and making yourself heard. But there's a look, there's a line that you that you just can't cross, and I think that was crossed probably too much um, at this at this AO. And yeah, you know it's a it's a real shame because um, look, I can't I can't remember an Australian Open where it's, <laughs> there's been. There's been there's been this much talk about the crowd, and you know even trickling is down as far down as simple stuff like just you know after you've you know gone and get some got some refreshments or an ice cream or whatever, and you come back into the court at a change of ends, just sit down, mm. take a effing seat seriously. Yeah, like oh my god, it was it's just frustrating every time that uh, you know a TV camera pans to some people like walking down the stairs or something, and they're just you know aimlessly looking for their seat or whatever. Just sit down and let play continue. So okay. that's that's just one thing I wanted to get off my chest. But yeah, look, I mean, it, it is a very fine line, um, and you know, talking in between serves and you know cheering double faults and uh, you know making noise in a point, unless it's like an ooh or an ah, you know, like a, from a, 
you know, like a, mm. a shot that's gone deep into the corner and, you know, dusted the line or something. That's all, that's obviously fine. Right. That's all well yeah, and good. And yeah. Um, I mean, if it's, if it's just, you know, from nowhere and it's just completely stupid then that's, that's not on really. Um, and look, I mean, this was another point that, that Daniel made, he's going on about, you know, the crowd cheering on forced errors. Unfortunately, that's always going to happen. Right. Yeah. But the, the crowd are going to have, they're going to have a side. They're going to have a side. And they always do. That's all, they and they always, always do. do. That's nothing new. That's always been the case, unfortunately. So, yeah, look. Um, yeah, it's it's a really tough one. But you've just got to, I think you've got to respect, simply put, you've got to respect the basic fundamentals of being in a tennis crowd. Just got to respect the occasion, respect the players, you know, all for challenging traditions. But the tradition here is, it's silent. They concentrate. Let it be. Applaud the point at the end of it all. And when someone wins, you give them a hand. I think it's pretty simple. Yeah. And in the middle of the point, Joel, shut your fuck shut up. up. Yeah, shut your <laughs> fuck up, okay. Um, <laughs> you better shut it, your fuck up. Okay? <laughs> that's so good. It's the, uh, the, man- the fact that we managed to get that on TV a couple of times last week, that <laughs> just phenomenal. Um, but, yes, I, I agree. And, look, it was a zoo. It was an out and out zoo, and there might have been there might as well have been a thousand monkeys running around the the stadium because yeah. they were and acting the, this, like the, it. The Cristiano Ronaldo thing as well, just oh. on the topic of, of Nick. Just can we not do that anymore? That is so lame. Seriously, it is oh, so unbelievably lame. It's terrible when Ronaldo does it, let alone a bunch of idiots in the Australian crowd doing it. and. In all honesty, of all the Grand Slams I've watched, and there have been some daggy people in crowds, like huh. Wimbledon, not so much because of it's Wimbledon, um, but the French Open and the US, we've seen some nasty things happen in the crowds, and we've seen some really frustrating things happen. This is the worst crowd I've seen collectively for a Grand Slam ever. It was embarrassing. As an Australian, I was ashamed. In all honesty, and Nick Kyrgios. I'm sorry. Max Purcell came out and said it perfectly. So he came out after the doubles final and said that if you live overseas, you're probably going to be turn, turned off from these Nick Kyrgios matches and the Kokonakis doubles matches. So he said, I think it was great for ticket sales here, but I'm not sure how it was taken overseas. If you're watching some of Nick and Thanasi's matches earlier in the week and you're overseas, maybe you get turned off tennis a little bit. Look, I'm excited that I got to play in front of such a big crowd. The fact that we're Australian, I don't think they're as hard um, as they have been on the rest of the opponents that they've had. Um, I'm grateful for that. It's good to see a lot of people supporting Australian tennis. I don't think Max Purcell said anything wrong there. Absolutely no, I nothing. So I, I don't think, think he so either. Bang on the money. Yeah, I don't and think so I was, either. And I was turned off. Like there were times, Joel, where I had to stop watching because Nick's mm. antics of geeing up the crowd and acting acting like an idiot. It like it just the sprinting around the court, the flailing <laughs> arm movements, the geeing up the crowd to talk in between first and second serves. And then he has the guile to ask the umpire to remove someone in the final game of the men's doubles final. That guy was an absolute idiot. We were watching it together. Oh yeah. He yeah. he was a moron and then tried to apologize. I'm glad they ejected him. Yeah, I've got him all on camera. But the fact that Kyrgios asked for him to be ejected 
when it's his fault in the first place that the crowd throughout the fortnight have been acting like this. He said, oh, no, we want to make it a party atmosphere. But no, it's there's a fine line. And you're right. It was crossed to the point where you couldn't even see the line. Yeah. And I think I think it needs to be said. It's important that it's put out there. I think what, uh, you know, the, the positive of, of what Nick and Tanasi did, obviously the story is great, but I also think they've done a really good thing for doubles because... Look, you know, I personally think that, you know, doubles was fading quite a bit. Um, you know, I, I haven't been interested in the, in the doubles in so long. And Nick and Tanasi's story really did hook me in. So, you know, that, that has to be said, I think. Um, you know, it was fun to watch. It really was. It was fun to watch. But, yeah, look, as far as the crowd thing goes, like, yeah, I just, I just think it, it does the you know sort of the extent that it got to i think maybe does set a little bit of a a dangerous precedent i don't think there's anything wrong with a sort of party atmosphere at a tennis match i actually you know i actually i actually like the enthusiasm that nick brings to a tennis match but it's it's just when it gets too far i think that's a problem um which it and, did on a lot of occasions yeah and i guess because it caused problems that, with a lot of opponents Joel, like michael venus yeah. and tim poots Mate Pavic and Nikola Mektic and then Max Purcell and Matt Epton weren't massive fans of no. how they went about it. Yeah, I guess. And the issue as well is, I guess, then it comes back to, uh, you know, how how do you then manage that? I guess if we, if we put ourselves in the umpire's chair, how do you then manage that? Um, like, how far can it go? Because I, I can only imagine that there's only so far that, the chair umpire can, you know, say to the crowd, you know, settle down and, you know, when when players are serving, you know, just, you know, be quiet, settle down, that kind of thing. I just wonder, yeah, how much power do they have there? Because I, I, can't, I can't really imagine that they would be overly influential. There's only so far that they can go, I think. Yeah, and they had to do it a lot this tournament, more than I've ever seen at an AO. And before we do get to our first break, Nick Kyrgios' statement on Instagram this morning about yeah, regarding like Max, Max Purcell. This was trash. This was absolute trash. FU Media on it. So this is in regards to his Ash Barty comments as well and how Ash Barty's dad talked about the atmosphere that they created. FU Media, <laughs> honestly. He threw, I, he threw Mr. Barty under the bus as well. He right? really did, big time. Um, honestly, I said nothing disrespectful to Ash Barty. I said that the crowd this year was amazing and I feel as though Tanasi and I were a big part of that. Ash's father came to me and even said that. All I said was that when people watch me around the world, the stadiums are full. I grew up with Ash and always knew her potential, which just reeks of arrogance in that sense, that the stadiums are full, um, which they might and, very and, well be. Like just some humility would be nice. And then <laughs> and also him talking about Ash, I think he's been patronizing too. It's like, I mean, she just won the women's singles. Like, Yeah, it's like she should be talking about you, not you, her. Um, yeah. But his comments about Ash weren't that bad. Like that, the media no, did... No, 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 they weren't. They the, weren't. The media did miss... Yeah. Yes, the media did misconstrue that 100%. So his comments were fine. But then this, this was just disgraceful on every level. As for Max Purcell, you donut. Regarding your comments after the match, you clearly have no idea about entertainment and sport. If you haven't noticed, there is a reason why people actually come to my matches. It's because the level and my game are actually worth watching. Next time you lose another slam final, you should put your head down and try and figure out how to play the big points better. 
no need to slate other Aussies in the media because people would rather watch my, a paint dry um, than your serve and volley game style. I'm sorry, but Nick's lost me. Nick has absolutely 100% lost me. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't like that. I don't it's, like that. That it's just it's awful. Max did not say anything wrong. That mm. it's just it's a disgraceful comment because it just it. You need to just come out, and I think it should be said privately. Just maybe text Max and say, "Look, why did you think this?" Or you know, or just say, "Look, this was my reason for this," or what have you. Don't come out on Instagram and make it public. Because it yeah. just creates more drama. And we spoke about immaturity before. That's grade A immaturity. So, look, yeah, Nick Kyrgios, there's a lot of work to do there. Um, and it was a really disappointing end to what should have been a absolutely magnificent week and what was a magnificent week for them on, co- on court. And big congratulations to him and Thanasi for winning the doubles because it really it captured the hearts of Australia in a sense where everybody was watching the doubles. As you said, it puts some great focus on um, on the men's doubles draw. And yeah, they're probably going to play in Turin at the end of the year, which is just even more remarkable. So big hats, yeah. big hats off to Nick Kyrgios and Thanasi Kokonakis and Matt Ebden and Max Purcell for making the final. But there is still plenty more to come on Breakpoint Podcast. We're going to talk about the one and the only Ash Barty right after this. Follow Breakpoint on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Breakpoint Podcast. Search us on Facebook and subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Breakpoint Podcast. Val Febo and Joel Fridgey here with you talking all things Australian Open and reviewing what a remarkable two weeks it was at Melbourne Park. And it led us to asked the question at the start of the show, Novak who? And I'm still asking it because the tennis that was uh, on show by one lady just trumped it all. And Ashley Barty just hats off, hats off. And we watched this together on Saturday night, Joel, with a 6-3-7-6 win over Danielle Collins, the first Australian winner uh, since Chris O'Neill in 1978, who also coincidentally beat an American with that exact same scoreline. So, Crazy, right? insane and then the emotion that Ash showed after she won came from 5-1 down in the uh, in the second set to Danielle Collins somehow she won it in a tie break the emotion on show Ash is a very reserved character she doesn't like to show too much emotion on court but the release was just so good to see and as an Australian I think it was so nice that we kind of got to share Ash's journey watching uh, watching it on TV and everybody was riding the bumps with her. And she was so dominant. Like, can you tell me how many players, Joel, have won the Australian Open since 2000, male or female, without dropping a set? Without dropping a set. Mm. I'm going to have to... I'll just go a handful. I'll say a flat five. Yeah. Oh, yeah I was going to say if you could uh, if you could name them. Um, but I think it oh, was... I, I, think it, I think it is five now because... Was Lindsay okay. Davenport in 2000, yep. Roger Federer in 2007, Maria Sharapova in 2008, Serena Williams in 2017, and Ash Barty in 2022. So you're right. It's five. a new company. It, it, it is. It is. And the only players, the only active players, sorry to reel off all these stats, everyone, but uh, the <laughs> uh, no, only, no, 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 no. 
Yeah, true. But I've been saying them. I've been texting them. <laughs> um, the only players active, male or female, to win a slam on three different surfaces, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, Serena Williams, and Ashley Barty. She's in elite company. And I cannot see her losing a match at the moment. She is on fire and she's a beauty to watch. Yeah, she really is. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to look back at, at, uh, at her Somerville. Um, you know, think back to the Adelaide International um, at the very start of the year. I remember watching her first match against Coco Golf, and mm. she was not looking so good, Ash, in that, no. in that match. You know, granted, um, you know, she pulled the pin a bit early in 2021. So maybe, you know, sort of, she was just easing back into it a, a little bit is what I kind of gauge, but you know, she was a set down and she was a breakdown in the second set as well uh, against Coco, obviously a very, very, very good player. Um, still, still can't believe that she's 17 coming on 18 crazy. Um, but anyway, just at that point I'm thinking, oh, okay, Ash is looking okay, but you know, clearly not at her best. And then from that point forward, really, I mean, she, she has just looked unbeatable, like absolutely mm. unbeatable. I, and I said it in our last show, um, I, I can't remember seeing uh, a woman this dominant at a Grand Slam really since the glory days of Serena Williams when she was at her absolute peak. I can't remember anything like it. She has been absolutely fantastic. And as for the, as for the final coming up against Danielle Collins, who was in fantastic form, like she was, mm. she was finding the spots, right? We talk about her being temperamental, but she was... The whole two weeks, she's been seeing the ball like a watermelon, and that second set, she was she was on right. Um, it was the back the backhand was destroying Ash. Yeah, oh, the, the backhand is an absolute weapon. The backhand is an absolute weapon from from Danielle Collins, and um, you know we, we did watch it together, and I I can't remember being as emotionally invested um, really in any tennis match uh, for a long long time, and you know that's that's factoring in like uh, you know just some. I guess from a fan point of view, uh, probably the 2017 AO men's final, uh, the Fidel final, um, you know, from a fan's point of view, that was just like the perfect final and you couldn't help but be invested in that. But just watching Ash the other night, it just, it just felt like the whole country was, was watching. And uh, yeah, it was just such a, such a wonderful occasion in, uh, in the end. The, re- the release at the end, as you said, was great. And then to see Yvonne Goulagon Cawley come onto the court, um, afterwards in the in the trophy presentation, absolutely fantastic. That was, mm. I think, the moment of the tournament. It was so good. It was it just really was so good. And there was look, no, there wasn't any. There was no woman on the WTA that was more deserving of, of the title. I think it was it was Ashes all the way. And um, look, fair play to Danielle Collins as well. I thought her acceptance speech as a runner up was really good. But mm. yeah, it was yeah, it was Ashes night. I think this this event was all about her. Yeah, it, it was, was. and and we said it, we said it way before the tournament started that it was Ash Barty's to lose, and I I thought she'd romp it in, and after a point, I did look at you and say she's home, and in the second set, we're a little bit nervous when she was down five one, a little but, bit, but... <laughs> I did, but I backed myself in with Barty. I have got the utmost of trust in the way that she goes about her business, and it was just, it was phenomenal. It really was in the Yvonne moment, as you mentioned. It was one of those I'm not crying, you're crying moments. Um, yeah. And there were so many parallels to her first Grand Slam win as well. And you look at in that run, she defeated Anna Samova. She defeated Pagula. 
she defeated Keys and she defeated Collins. And she also played um, Sophia Kennan in that draw. Jessica Pagula actually defeated Kennan in the draw. So, oh, sorry, Madison Keys actually defeated Kennan in the draw. So there were so many similarities to that first Grand Slam that she she won at the French in 2019. And she is now primed for a year of dominance that we have not seen from anybody but Serena because we know Ash can do it on three surfaces. She has done so. The only active player aside from Serena to do it. Um, you get to the French. She was dominant on the clay last year. If it wasn't for injury, she probably would have won the French. She won Wimbledon last year. The US is the only one that she hasn't won and wouldn't bet against her doing that either because she can travel to and from Australia freely now. I think she'll take some time off after this tournament just to regroup, just to get her emotions in order and then push on with Indian Wells and Miami. So Ash is such a smart competitor. She plays the game beautifully. She analyzes her opponents beautifully and I have no re- well, no doubts in my mind. She's 2,633 points ahead of Arena Sabalenka in second yeah. spot in the rankings. This world number one spot is going to be Ashes for a very long time because I've not seen someone play like this since Serena. Even the Sharapova yeah. days, mm. Ashley Barty is a dream to watch. It's it's she it's is. just fantastic. I, I know I'm gushing a lot, but... Um, huh. Yeah, absolutely magnificent tournament from Ashley yeah, Barty. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, thoroughly deserved the title. It was hers from the mm. from the beginning. And yeah, I think and you're right, Dan, Dan well, I was gonna call her Danimal Collins. Um, that's her social media <laughs> that's her social media name. She played like an animal. She was just in it for the fight. And what were we looking at the other night? I was going back through all the draws to see who the last person was or last female was that won the tournament from a set down on three occasions, if she had pushed it to three. You were going back decades. I was in the 50s and it still hadn't happened. So it definitely hasn't (laughs) happened in the open era um, or at Melbourne Park. So, yeah, just unreal tournament from Danielle Collins to get through um, and reach the final and play as well as she did in the final and not be overawed by the experience. She's in the top 10 now for the first time she hits number 10 in the world. So yeah, amazing fortnight from her, but there were so many standouts. Madison keys um, just had a brilliant tournament. Igish Fiontech, her first grand slam semifinal outside of Roland Garros and just her second in general, she played a really solid tournament as well. So um I think we have so much to look forward to on the women's side for the rest of 2022. Yeah, we really do. And I guess that leads me to the question that I want to, I want to ask you, Val, is we look at the, the rankings and the WTA, or we, we think about who's up there, and clearly we've got Ash, let's face it, a, a long way ahead of the chasing pack at the moment. We've got Rena Sabalenka, number two, and then we look at names like Maria Sakkari, and we've got um, you know, Paola Badosa, and um, you know, obviously Danielle Collins has put herself in the top 10 now. So, you know, I'm looking at that, that group and I'm thinking, who, who is really the one that's going to that's gonna trouble Ash? Like, who are, the, who are the few that are going to make an impression for the rest of the year? Because I'll have a look at it and, you know, Arena, if she gets going, then yes, there's no doubt mm. that she can make some inroads. But her based serve on what is a worry. Yeah, you know, based on what we've seen at the Open, her serving was all over the shop. Um, so... I hold my reservations about how much damage that that she can do. And then really the rest of it is, um, you know, anyone's guess really. Like Barbara Krachikova, she can trouble anyone on her day. Victoria Azarenka, if you look a bit further down. 
like who who really can be the one that's going to leave a lasting impression on 2022 other than Ash? Well, if you look at the top 20 now, and if I go down, if, if I'm saying if they're playing Ash Barty, the ones that are a realistic chance to beat her, or for me anyway, look, they, they all can beat her, but the ones that I'd be more nervous about than others would be Sabalenka. As you said, she's got to get her serve right. Sviantek on clay is a very tricky proposition. Mm. Pliskova, yeah, she played on pretty grass, well in the, Wimb- in the Wimbledon final last year. Paula Bedosa, or Paula Bulldozer, as you called her. Um, <laughs> I think she is probably going to finish the year as number two in the world. Um, I, I love the way she plays. She's like, she is a bulldozer because she mm. just smacks the ball and she gets it in more often than not. Um, Gabinia Muguruza, she's always there about. She's always going to be tough to beat. Sakari hits the ball pretty hard. Annette Conserve had a great year last year. Collins, we know she can make a Grand Slam final, but consistency is probably the issue there. On Shabur is another one that I think that can challenge Ash because she too has a lot of variety in her game, and that's what I love. So mm. she didn't get to get to play at the Open as well. A real exactly. Shame. It was really disappointing. It was a very late pull out there for Jabir. So hopefully she's okay. Um, Radikanu, I think she's just got a lot of developing to do, but she's going to be an out and out star. I just think we should temper our expectations on her when she plays well, Definitely. she plays well when she doesn't, she doesn't um, Coco Goff, What will she produce? We don't know. Um, as a ranker, of course, she's a fantastic competitor, but um, injuries probably curtailed her a little bit. Then you've got Fernandez, Halep all can, you know, on their day can be phenomenal. Halep, I think she's she's had a few injuries, so that's probably cost her. Um, Kvitova and Ostapenko, again, can smack the ball, same as Madison Keys and Camilla Georgie. So I'm going through all the rankings at the moment. But there's also <laughs> there's also Osaka and Anna Samova. So all the names that I've listed off there are all well and good enough to beat Ash Barty. We know that. Anyone's good enough to beat anyone on their day. That's why they're tennis players. That's why they're ranked where they're ranked. But the difference from Barty, mentally, she's very, very, very strong. And physically, she doesn't exert as much on her body as some of the other players do. And she hits the ball with a bit of venom when she does strike it well. And she finds angles that most others don't. Um, She finds depth that most others don't. And the slice and the serve placement Mm -hmm. perfection. So, look, I, I can't see many of those players beating her this year if she plays that well. Coco Gauff, again, might, you know, she had the best chance and still Ash came up with it. So very long-winded answer for you, Joel. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, um, yeah, I, I don't know what you think about that question. Like if you had to list some of the main players that could beat her, I know you did, but like if there was one that you were going to be nervous about, who would it be? Yeah, I, it is a really hard one. I probably should have thought about my answer before I asked you, to be honest. But um, probably... You knew uh, I was going to throw it back at you. <laughs> yeah no i just think about in terms of uh like a a name that comes to mind when i think of a sort of all-court player is probably Gabinia. um i think she's really the one i think she's got like a nice kind of balance between her size and the variety that she gets in her game so i think if she puts it together she's probably the one uh for me but you know that's the that's the beauty of the wta isn't it we really just don't know um other other than ash i mean uh, that's another thing that makes her so incredible but she just at the moment has a real stranglehold on on the tour like we haven't 
we haven't seen it since since Serena, and it's yeah. it's just insane that that's um you know obviously they have different physiques. Serena had a really unique physique, uh, and she was able to make the most of that. Um, Ash obviously doesn't have that type of build, but it's just it's incredible that uh, you know she's kind of uh, you know I guess well really just writing her own story. Yep, and that's exactly what she's done, and. Uh, and that's funnily what her um, what her mindset coach Ben Crow kind of says: own your story, and that's what she does. So Ash Barty, and look, this has been a massive gush fest for Ash Barty, but I don't care because <laughs> she is just so damn good to watch. But it does end the tournament, and sadly, because it has been a wonderful two weeks, we've seen some brilliant stories, brilliant matches, and um, some really long matches, long five setters. But the Australian Open in two thousand and twenty two is closed and we move on to the rest of the year we've got three atp 250s uh coming up in uh, pune in um, france and also in uh in argentina and uh and yeah we'll move on to those over the next week or so and then get into february where we have some great great tournaments including atp 500s in dubai and acapulco and there's just some awesome tournaments i love february on both tours but joel before we do go it is time for our favorite segment of the week the benoit of the week last week it went to the man himself oh no it didn't two weeks ago it went to the man himself last week was still in all um who are we giving it to this week Oh, wow. We were shooing on this one for a little while, but uh, I think I've given you the keys to the kingdom this week because I think you made the executive decision. Yeah, I, I did. Um, it's got to go to Nick Kyrgios because it was a quintessential Benoit week because he had a great week, but also a very poor week at the same time. Physically and on court, brilliant. Winning the doubles with the Nasi Kokonakis, amazing performance. Off court, not really sure. So Nick Kyrgios, I, I guess we can't put it more succinctly than, succinctly than that. Um, he is really has had a Benoit, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. He, no, he has. That, this is what we invented this segment for, That these types of weeks. So it was the perfect Benoit week for Nick Kyrgios. So he gets it this week, could almost get double votes for how much of a Benoit week it was, for how much it fluctuated. But um, he gets it this week. Um, and yeah, we've got a we've got a tie at the top because everyone's received one so far. So we've got Novak, Serdian, Diana, Georgia Djokovic. They all got one. Dylan Alcott, Benoit Pair, and Nick Kyrgios. They are some heavyweight Benoit nominations to start the year. Yeah, they're <laughs> they're sizable ones, but it's a good uh, it's a good little list to kick things off, Al. It's uh, mm. yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm excited to see who can. Who can challenge this year? Because uh, yeah, <laughs> it's been it's been a flying start for them right of the week. I'm I'm just I want to I want to get to the end of things and see who's going to get it. Yeah, well, so do I because we've still got our 2020 and 2021 winners. They've already been nominated, so they're continuing oh. <laughs> their form. Um, so Djokovic and Benoit both have been nominated so far. So this is going to be a real hot race. This would be more hotly contested than Verstappen and Hamilton in 2021 in the F1 season. So um, very excited to see what happens there. But that is all we have time for for today. Remember, you can subscribe on uh, on Spotify, on uh, Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your shows from, we are there. And follow us on social media at Breakpoint Pod on Twitter, Breakpoint Podcasts on Instagram, and Breakpoint Podcast on facebook and you can follow the wonderful man at joel fruch f-r-u-c-h on twitter um give him a follow 
uh, because he just comes up with yes, some please. very, very, very nice content. Um, <laughs> and we need to get his following up to get his ego going because I love it when Joel's on a roll. <laughs> We all do. Um, but Joel, thank you very much, mate. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk tennis with you and uh, and we'll do it all again soon. Yep, sounds good, mate. I'm going to go get some sleep, I reckon. Yeah, me too. It was a very, very late slash early morning for me this morning. So I'm very ready for, I think I had a nap for 15 <laughs> minutes before we jumped on. So uh, I was very refreshed, but now I'm feeling exhausted again. So it's been a great two weeks. The Australian Open done and dusted in 2022. Joel and I are going to go get some sleep. It has been Joel Frucci and Val Febo on Breakpoint Podcast. Catch you soon.